Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Right. Who watches that? Anybody? No? I must admit, I haven't seen much of that. Um... I thought that that video highlighted something really important about our modern world, is that we have an idea of what we think family is, but more often than not, what we think family is and what family actually is are not generally the same thing. Um, so we're in this series, Epis for Family, this morning, and so we've had a look. So last week, we were um, Ben spoke to us about husbands and wives, um, the week before that, Dave gave us an overview of sort of what the first century sort of family that Paul was talking specifically into, what that sort of family sort of looked like. Um, and so where we are technically this morning in still in the book of Ephesians, starting in chapter 6, about parents and children. But before we get there this morning, one of the things that I think is important for us to sort of look at is how do we get where we are today in the context of the modern family? Because we still have this often, this notion that we all live in nuclear families, so we have, you know, two adults living together and 2.5 children. But often the reality of that isn't what, it doesn't reflect that. And... What I want to do this morning is to actually give an overview. I was going to say brief overview, but I'm going to be up here for a little while giving said overview. Um, about how we got where we are today when we're looking at the modern family. Because we all have our house, household codes I have a real problem saying those words together for some reason, so <laughs> we'll get, I don't say it very often. But the question that when Dave started talking about this series, the, my, my, my first question was, well, what are our modern household codes? What is the underlying cultural narrative that speaks into what we think family is or should be? Because if we understand what we think family is or should be, then if our family doesn't match that, then it's like, well, am I doing well in life? Am I not doing well in life? It actually feeds into a whole bunch of other sort of questions that we are almost subconscious. We're not really asking them consciously. I know that I've spoken to, like often when you're talking to single parents and they're like, well, am I less than because I don't have a partner? Or you have a couple who is getting older and because everyone knows when you get married, it's like, you know, you get engaged and the second after you get engaged, you go, right, when are you getting married? Right? And then the second after you get married, so we've got two couples getting married in a couple of weeks, the second you get married, you're going to have 100 people going, so when are you having kids? <laughs> because that actually feeds into our cultural values of what we say we think family is. And so, from even from that video, family can look really, really differently. So, I'm going to go through a whole bunch of stats today. This 
my part, I'm, I'm getting someone else up and I'll introduce that person to talk about parenting and stuff in a little bit because they're better at parenting than me. Um, but I, I'm, it's going to be a little stat information heavy from my perspective because I want us to understand sort of the journey of what we've taken to get where we are today that feeds into our cultural values of family, okay? So, I think you'll all remember potentially last year that we did a census, yeah? Where the government sticks its nose into our business and wants to know everything about us. Um, I mean, you know, oh, that means that we're good citizens and all of that. So, but so they are incrementally releasing the information from the 2021 series, uh, the census, so they don't have a lot of that stuff released yet on families. But we have the 2016 census data, um, and they, you can see the trends from the 2011 census data. So let me give you some overviews about the average Australian family from 2016 and onwards, because the trends are staying the same. So in Australia, so not just WA, in Australia, there are more than 6 million families. Of those families, 84% of them are what they call couple families. So there's two adults living together. There's just over 5.6 million families who live together in a couple relationship. However, of those couple relationship families... 56% of them were without dependents. So it was just two adults living together on their own. So 44% of them were living with dependents. So if you're looking back at that total figure of 6 million plus families in, in Australia, 38% of that, which is the highest, are couple families with no children. And the most next common was coupled families with dependent children under 15, which was 30%. So in 2016, and those numbers are getting more, the, the most um, common family form at the moment is not a nuclear family. Although we say that that's our cultural values, our culture actually doesn't reflect that anymore. Same in America, same in England. It's all the same trend. Single parent families with depend sorry, yeah, so single parent families with dependent children comprise of around eight percent, which is just under a million families of single parents, and eighty-three percent of single families are headed by single mums. Another stat said that forty-three percent of under thirteens either live with a single parent, a non-biological parent figure a step or half-sibling, or a grandparent. So the idea that we have, or I have, and you'll get, we'll get into my story in a little bit in a sec, of that the norm in Australia, Western First World, is a nuclear family, actually isn't true anymore. That is not the most... Pe most people don't live in a nuclear family anymore. The Australian Bureau, Bureau of Statistics said this. So the idea of a traditional nuclear family has been changing for some time now. Trends in divorce and remarriage have contributed to more one-parent step and blended families. It's coming up in the stats. An article I read in my research of this wrote this. 
The situation of contemporary family is, con is complicated. There are even arguments that today's family is not, is so, sorry, let me start that again. There are arguments, there are even arguments that today's family is internally so transformed or so vague that continued usage of the term family is problematic, not only terminologically, but mostly socially. It seems the idea of family has been losing its meaning and is now outdated. The question presents itself whether it was more appropriate to take a household as a basic unit or if it were better to adopt the notion of cohabitation. Now, I disagree with that. I'll put that up at, out front. I think the term family and the value of family, whatever that looks like, is actually really, really important. There's value in it. But the reason why I gave you that quote is because there's this underlying narrative now that, well, we're just sort of cohabiting. Because what does family mean anyway? So the idea of what family is is shifting. And we need to understand that. That we can't just pretend that everyone who lives in a nuclear family is normal and everyone else isn't. Now, I know we don't say that. But that might actually be the underlying current of attitude. It's not right or wrong. It just is what it is. I just want us to be more aware of it. And so we all have a bias. We know that. Now, it was interesting for me in my research of this to actually sit and sort of analyse and think about what my bias is. Because I don't really think about it. It's, it's, a, it's just, you know, I'm, it's like a fish swimming in water. It is what it is. You don't really think about that stuff. So I grew up. Um, so what, like, what are my family values? What are my foundational beliefs? And then how does that affect how I think about others? These are pretty important questions that we need to ask ourselves. So I grew up in what you would call a typical nuclear family. Um, mother, father, I had an older sister. My, um, and my parents traditionally did sort of the traditional roles. My father went out to work. My mum had a part-time job, but mostly um, like stayed at home, looked after my sister and I, did all the domestic sort of duties. Um, they were 10-pound poms from back in the 70s, so they left all of my family in England. So I grew up not knowing any extended family at all. I met an uncle, I think, when I was about 10. So we were very isolated. Two adults, two children was normative for me growing up in the 80s. Everyone who lived on my street were all nuclear families, pretty much. All of my friends through high school, primary school and high school were all nuclear families. Two parents, couple of kids, father went out to work, mum stayed home, looked after the kids. Now, I know that that's not everybody's story, but that was my story. So a nuclear family scenario was actually really normal for me. And so I need to understand what my bias is when I'm starting to look at other families. Because it's not that I judge, it's just that there's this underlying expectation of what family should look like. So this morning, I'm going to attempt to draw a really narrow line through a really wide and complex subject of how we got where we are today. I'm going to give some really broad brushstrokes. I obviously can't give a lot of specifics. I could 
pretty much pick a topic of 100 topics that we're going to talk about and spend 20, 30 minutes talking about that because it's actually quite interesting. It was for me at least anyway. I also recognise that my bias and a lot of the research that I'm giving you is from a first world, predominantly white context because that's my context. That's the context often of a lot of the stats that I was looking at. I recognise that your context might not be what I'm talking about right now because you come from somewhere else or you have a different family value structure. I get that, but I can't talk about an African context because I don't know what that is. So forgive me if this isn't your context. So we're only going to start back in the early 1800s. So <laughs> don't worry, broad brushstrokes. So back in the 1800s, we actually find, the early 1800s, we actually find a very different family structure, okay, way of life. A large percentage of the population either lived or worked in farms or family businesses. So there were large amounts of children because they needed a large workforce to work said businesses, okay? So families were quite large. And most families, or many families, lived in multi-generational extended family homes that were surrounded by, you know, grandparents, uncles, aunties, cousins, all that sort of stuff. So this type of living back in the early 1800s provided a great deal of support and provided increased resilience when sort of bad times happened. Someone's doing it tough financially, others were around them to support them. A family member died, like say a mother died. There were aunties and grandparents and stuff who could fill that void so the family wasn't on their own or alone. And extended families provided moral and social support raising children. Parents didn't raise their children on their own. It was done in community. So as industrialization increased towards the late 19th and early 20th centuries, populations moved from a more rural to a more urban or township sort of environment. Young men and women left the farm, left their homes, and often got married earlier than previous generations. So in the families that they started were nuclear families. So by the 1920s, the stereotypical nuclear family was a sole breadwinner um, as, as a male, was the dominant family form. In America, by 1960, over 77% of all children were living with their two parents who were married apart from their extended family. So there was, that's actually, it doesn't seem like, that's, an, that's a massive cultural shift in a really, really short period of time. So the 1950s and the 1960s were seen as the golden period for the nuclear family. Okay? Divorce rates dropped, fertility rates rose, and most people seemed really prosperous and happy. It was in this period that the family ideal was cemented into the psyche of society. Two, two, two adults married, 2.5 children. Now, we take this as normative. But it wasn't that way. Humans hadn't lived that way for thousands of years before that. 
and humans haven't lived for most of that time after that. There was a golden period of about 15 years that absolutely cemented that this is the ideal. So the thing is, nuclear families flourished in this time for some really, really specific cultural reasons. Now, like um, anything that when, when something's going really well in society, there's always a proportion of society that pays the price. Like, we know that living in the first world, and we pretty much have everything we want at our fingertips, we know that there are people in the third world who are paying the price for that. There's always cost and effect. So in the 1950s and 60s, the people who were paying the price for that were women. So women were relegated to the home. They weren't allowed to work. And single women were allowed to work, but the second they got married, they had to give up and go and look after the family. Trapped in the home under the headship of their husband and raising children. So this period was also before television and air conditioning had taken on. Now that sounds funny, but the thing is, families would live on one another's front porches. They would be in each other's lives. You would raise and help raise your, your neighbour's children. You would look after each other. I need sugar. Okay, go get some from next door. Um, and so they were almost like the extended families of the generations before. And this was also the post-war period. There was a high church attendance. There was high levels of unionisation. There was high levels of social trust. There was mass prosperity. And all these factors all equaled and allowed men to work jobs that paid enough that they could go out and be the sole breadwinner. And the wife stayed at home. Now, it had been shifting for a little while, but it wasn't until sort of the late 60s, early 70s, that society sort of broke free of a lot of that, became a lot more individualistic and self-focused. People began to value their privacy, and the rising feminist movement um, helped women extricate themselves from being stuck at home, and they had greater freedom to live and work as they chose. Marriage stopped being about childbearing and started being more about adult fulfilment. Now, if you stopped marrying for children and started marrying for love, then staying together made less sense when love died. And as a result, divorce rates skyrocketed and they obviously continue to rise today. So just a couple of generalisations over the last two generations. So firstly, families have gotten smaller. We don't have massive clans anymore. Anyone with more than five kids is like, ooh, like, you don't have enough hands. So um, children are seen as emotional rather than economic assets, and they often are seen as belonging more to mothers than to fathers. The physical space separating families has widened. So not only in streets where our blocks have gotten bigger and we are separating ourselves more and more from our neighbours. I mean, it's gotten smaller recently, but you know what I mean. 
but also family members now lives far away from each other. They not only they didn't live in the same street or in the same sort of area. They now live in different towns, different states, different countries, because they're they're pursuing their own lives. It's not a bad thing. It just is what it is. Married people are less likely to help parents and siblings do chores or offer emotional support. And the kicker, and this is a key point, is that modern society sees itself as individuals, not as families. There is a growing number of young people that see their family as a restriction to their personal freedom. And the divide between the rich and poor has become more pronounced. So the thing is, since the 1950s, if you are affluent and educated, your family pattern has remained almost stable. For the less fortunate, those who aren't affluent or those who aren't educated, life often is more chaotic. And the reason for that is that more affluent families are able to pay others to effectively be their extended families. Babysitting, childcare, tutoring, coaching, therapy. All the things that an extended multi-generational family would do for each other, rich people now pay each other to do that. Whereas low socioeconomic families, single parents, those under, on the wrong side of the wage gap, don't have the funds to be able to pay for that. So life's more chaotic. Now, one writer said this about isolated nuclear families who are not affluent. People who grow up in, nuclear, in a nuclear family tend to have a more individualistic mindset than people who grow up in multi-generational extended clans. People with an individualistic mindset tend to be less willing to sacrifice self for the sake of family, and the result is more family disruption. People who grow up in disrupted families have more trouble getting the education they need to have prosperous careers. And people who don't have prosperous careers have trouble building stable families because of financial challenges and other stresses. And the children in those families tend to be more isolated and more traumatised. So we look at all of that and we arrive today we see the problems, however you want to define them or describe them, and we go, well, how do we, how do, what's the answer? How do we fix it? Well, does it need to be fixed is also a question. I think, I don't know. But the thing is, the modern world doesn't have the answer. Because conservatives with their value of this nuclear family, look at, nuclear, look at non-nuclear families and arrogantly tell them to go and get a nuclear family. Like, that's their answer. So not only is that potentially not possible or realistic, it's also horribly arrogant and really short-sighted in a lot of ways. On the other hand, progressives are still telling us the same message that they had in the 70s. They tell us, pick whatever family works for you. Now, that's actually okay. You can go and do that. But the research shows 
that many new family forms don't work well for most people. And progressives, in their need to be tolerant and non-judgmental of everything, have left us with no governing norms of family life, no guiding values, and no articulated ideals. So progressives also have no definitive advice. Both sides of the political spectrum look at that and go... Mm-hmm. And for decades, things have been falling apart. And we are almost stuck in between two worlds. Because we can't go back to Paul's time, don't want to. We can't go back to the 1950s and 60s, also don't want to. But we want to be more connected. But our overarching drive for privacy and individuality mean that we still hold people at arm's length. We want stability and rootedness in our, in our families, in our communities, in, our, in, in everything. But we also want mobility and the liberty to adopt the lifestyle we choose. We want close families. But not all the legal, cultural and sociological constraints that made them possible. In a world of individualistic, detached, nuclear families we find a world where the family unit is too fragile to cope in crisis. It's a world where loneliness is rife. It's a world where suicide and depression rates are skyrocketing. It's a world where inequality is widespread and the gulf between the haves and the have-nots is an ever-growing chasm. Now, I'll get... In a minute, I'll get to what I think potentially our role as Christians might be in that. But before we get there, one of the questions that I think we need to ask this morning, because we have family stuff to get into with this series, is how do we parent in all of that? In the quicksand of life and the quicksand of culture and how much it's shifting and how quickly it's shifting... How do we parent in all of that? Now, if we look at Ephesians chapter 6, we're back in this series still, and so Paul is writing still, and he writes this. So, children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have, long, have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, Paul gives two commandments to children. Well, not, they're not commandments because Paul's not Jesus, so he can't give us commandments. So, but Paul gives two instructions to, to children and one instruction to parents. And this morning, I want to discuss how parents can look or how they can parent without infuriating or frustrating their children. Because it's not up to the children's role to make us feel okay. That's not their job. So I'm going to invite someone up now who's extremely nervous to be here and doing what they're going to do. Marnie, come on up. Yeah, yeah, use that mic. Um, 
So of those of you who don't know Marnie, as she comes up, let me introduce her. So Marnie is my wife. <laughs> so remember, they're for you. It's okay. Um, so we've been married for 18 years. Um, we have two daughters, um, 13-year-old and 11-year-old. Now, I can honestly say, and I'm not being self-deprecating here, that I try and be a good parent, but I'm not a great one. Um, I do my best parenting my daughters, and now they're getting into teens and preteens. I, I know less and less and less about their lives. But the thing is, how I speak to my daughters, how I listen to them, how I try and behave around them, how I try and lead them, I do most of that is because I watch and listen and to listen to Marnie. So I watch her be with our children. I watch her organize their feelings for them. I watch her be bigger, stronger, wiser and kind to them. And then I try and do my best because Marnie is an amazing mother. Now, as you're here, I'm going to go sit down. So, but I'm going to start off with, can you please give us a brief introduction of who you are and what your qualifications are? Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, as some of you may or may not know, um, around four years ago, um, I, I finished a Master in Social Work and um, since then a large part of my working life um, revolves around uh, working with parents and carers um, to help them understand their children's behaviour and respond in more supportive ways. Now, one of the ways um, that I do that um, is by using um, an intervention called the Circle of Security, um, for which I'm a trained facilitator. Um, and I, I use this framework for thinking about parenting, um, either in a, a group context um, or kind of one-on-one -on -one with, with individuals. So just on that note of... Um, uh, parents infuriating and frustrating their children. Um, I, I believe this model really helps us to understand um, our children and what they need from us in a way that doesn't lead to um, that frustration and um, anger that um, Paul was talking about. So, Circle Security is based on 50 years of attachment research, um, resulting in this visual map that we can see behind us um, of how to build secure relationships. So, as parents, we often wonder if we're getting it right, if we're succeeding. We try and combine um, what we learnt about parenting um, with advice from others and our own kind of values and beliefs and um, still we just kind of wonder if we're um, successful. Um, so there's lots of behavioural parenting models out there with sticker charts and rewards and um, things like that. Um, but this model offers a, a roadmap and relationship tools um, which are transferable into all of our relationships um, that we can apply to any situation so our children can enjoy a more secure relationship with us which you know makes pretty satisfied parenting. So the circle is a roadmap for us to help us see our children's attachment needs um, so that we don't miss them and they also guide us in ways on how to respond to them. So we all have attachment needs, every single one of us. Um, but we're just going to look at what that might look like for children. 
So when children are feeling safe and um, supported, um, then they, they have the confidence to go out into the world to explore. So you'll see that kind of on the, the top half of the circle there. So kids need us to support their exploration. And, and when they go out to explore, um, our relaxed presence, watching over them, um, is so important and so vital. Um, they need to know that um, we're there to help them if needed, and that's providing just enough help, um, not you know leaving them to work it out by themselves or um, taking over, uh, which is I'm guilty of at times. Um, and they also, they want us to enjoy um, their exploration with them. So recently we were watching some beautiful little clips of when our girls were very, very small. We got a hard drive out and plugged it into the TV. And um, we watched this one little clip of Dusty when she was about two. And Brett had propped up his phone like on the floor in the corner and he'd taken this little clip of Dusty jumping in puddles. Um, and how much fun she was having and him jumping in puddles with her. Um, so kids want us to be part of their adventures. Um, they'll invite us to do so. Um, and in those moments, we also um, need to share delight with them and that's in who they are um, and not what they're doing. So another one of these little clips which just really touched my heart um, you don't, you forget about so many things when they're babies. And um, we were watching this clip um, where I was just talking to Addison as like a four-month-old. And there was so much delight, like you could just see it. It was just visceral on the screen. Um, and, and those moments are really important for our children as well. So when they go out into the world, they need us on the, on the top half of the circle, watching over them, delighting in them, helping them when needed and um, enjoying um, their activities and adventures with them. So when exploration comes to an end, um, our children then have a new set of attachment needs on the bottom half of the circle. Um, and, and these needs um, involve us welcoming them to come to, into us. Um, this is when they're needing comfort, protection, um, and when they're overwhelmed and um, looking kind of um, confused or troubled about, about their feelings, about what's going on, um, they need us to welcome them in to, to help them with that experience. Sorry, I've lost my spot. <laughs> So when children are coming back in on the bottom half of the circle, part of our role is to fill their emotional cup. Now, we all have um, emotional cups and, you know, when we, we notice they're getting low, what do we do? We want to connect and, and reconnect with our close others in our, our life to, to fill our cup back up again, um, whether that's with a cuddle or a chat or um, many different ways in which we can, we can fill our cup back up again. Um, but I want to focus particularly on the bottom half of the circle, um, one of the key parts of creating secure attachment um, comes from a way of helping kids with their feelings that we call being with. Um, and, and that's kind of, you might put that underneath the organise my feelings category. So this doesn't just mean maintaining a physical presence or 
um, sitting by approvingly or having quality time with your kid while they're playing video games. Um, it means creating a shared emotional experience where your child learns that all people have similar feelings in common while also learning that each person also experiences feelings uniquely. When you practice being with your child, they develop empathy and build confidence in their own emotional competence as they learn, with our help and acceptance, how to manage all their feelings, including the difficult ones. So we're going to watch a short clip um, from a movie that some of you may have seen called Inside Out, which demonstrates being with, to give you a, a bit of an idea about what being with is all about. So in this clip, you'll see the characters of joy and the character of sadness in their different approaches to bing bong the elephant's distress about being forgotten by Riley. So you'll notice the character of joy doing the opposite of being with. And she'll be trying to distract and um, kind of turn a frown upside down to distract bing bong from um, what he's feeling, which really just pushes um, against his feelings and validates um, what it's like for him and, and doesn't help him feel better. Um, and then you'll see the character of sadness come alongside Bing Bong and empathetically connect and share Bing Bong's sadness about what's happened and, and this then helps him to feel better. So we might cue to that clip, please, Olivia. Oh, the stuffed animal hall of fame! My rocket! Wait, Riley and I were still using that rocket. <laughs> it still has some song power left. Who is your friend who likes to play? No! No, 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 you can't take my rocket to the dust. Riley and I are going to the moon. Riley can't be done with me. Okay, we can fix this. We just need to get back to headquarters. Which way to the train station? I had a whole trip planned for us. <gasps> hey, who's ticklish, huh? Here comes the tickle monster. Hey, Bing Bong, look at this. Oh, here's a fun game. You point to the train station and we all go there. Won't that be fun? Come on, let's go to the train station. I'm sorry they took your rocket. They took something that you loved. It's gone. Forever. Sadness. Don't make him feel worse. Sorry. It's all I had left of Riley. I bet you and Riley had great adventures. Oh, they were wonderful. Once we flew back in time, we had breakfast twice that day. Sadness! It sounds amazing. I bet Riley liked it. Oh, she did. We were best friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay now. Come on, the train station is this way. How did you do that? I don't know. I was sad, so I listened to what. Hey! There's the train! So 
as you can see from that, that little clip, the, the more often we can be with our children in their feelings, especially the difficult ones, the better things will go for them and us. So I guess a, a, just a really short little story about that one. Um, we always have a choice. So it was trying to get out of the house really early um, on a typical school morning and we'd been quite unsuccessful with a series of goldfish and um, that particular morning we'd woken up to yet more deceased fish um, and um, Addison was, was devastated. She was really, really sad. Um, and my mind is focused on we've got to get to school, this is just more dead fish, like this is not a priority for me right now. Um, but her, her devastation and, and her sadness, um, I, I had a choice. I could either push against it, bundle her out the door and she could have sat with that for the rest of the day um, or I looked at my watch and I had five minutes. Um, and I chose to spend five minutes um, to, to sit there and do just that. It's like you're really sad that, you know, these goldfish have gone. We've tried so hard. We've had so many. <laughs> and this just doesn't seem to be working. Um, so I, I think that um, whenever it's possible for us to be with our kids in their emotions... Um, then we all benefit. And the same with us as adults as well. When it's possible, when we can be with each other um, in, in our emotions and our feelings um, and empathise with each other, then everyone benefits. So um, you'll see also there on the circle there's some hands. And, you know, children need us to be parents, to be, uh, need us as parents to be in, in charge in a kind way. Uh, with the hands on our kids' worlds, um, on their circle. Um, and this comes with an invitation to be bigger, stronger, wiser and kind. So bigger and stronger without kind can sometimes turn into mean. Now being unkind is never good for children. And kind without bigger and stronger can sometimes turn into weak. Um, a parent who is weak tends to collapse or give in just when the child needs someone to take charge. Our children need us to be bigger and stronger so they feel safe knowing that someone is willing and able to protect them. And our wisdom shows up in knowing the balance of firmness and affection. So our role as bigger, stronger, wiser, kind parents is also knowing when to encourage them to go out in the world and how to be emotionally available to fill their cup when, and welcome them back into us. It's crucial that we develop the ability to read our children's needs because frequently misreading or missing them altogether causes our children a lot of unnecessary pain and frustration. This is what Paul's talking about. We all know how uncomfortable it can feel to be held too close when we want to be out exploring or to be kept at a distance when what we really need is emotional support. Or what it feels like to simply be without someone who is bigger, stronger, wiser and kind, who we can trust to help and understand us when we feel lost, overwhelmed or out of control. When a child misbehaves, often we find the root is uh, found in how safe and secure they're feeling. So it's not surprising that kids behave well when parents learn to tune into their child's needs around the circle. So with all this in mind, please remember there's no such thing as perfect parenting. 
And research finds that good enough parenting is, is just that, good enough. All of us are going to miss knees on the circle time and time again. Welcome to the club. Um, but if we manage to meet our children's needs enough of the time, that seems to be enough to, for children to be secure and for happier parent-child relationships. So you can learn more about this way of parenting um, if you have preschool um, children by attending a group, progr group program in um, your local community. Um, or if you have older children, um, there's a, a book, Olivia, I think we've got um, this book. Um, it'll give you more information about um, this way of thinking about parenting, uh, which I think aligns quite well with our, our loving relational God. Um, finally, I'm available for a chat <laughs> after um, the service if, if you want to talk about anything. Um, thank you for being kind to me <laughs> this morning <laughs> and I will hand, hand back to Brett. Thank you. You know, often you look at a couple and you go, wow, one of those couples is really lucky. One member and the other one is just doing life. <laughs> I'm really lucky <laughs> to have been married or to be married to Marnie. Um, she's very, very patient with me. I'm, I have a very thick skull in or when it comes to this sort of stuff. Um, I'm a very slow learner. And the, the thing is, I know that when you start looking at this style of parenting, the thing that it takes, the thing that I see Marnie do all the time is that it takes time. It takes a lot of time because you're being with your kids. Um, someone said to me, yet again, someone who was smarter than me said that you can't, because we all want quality time with our kids, yeah? We all, we all want that, yes, we're having quality time. But the thing is, you can't manufacture quality time. Quality time only comes out of quantitative time. And quantitative time means that you've got to actually spend time around your children in order for those bubble, that, that, that quality time to bubble to the surface. And then sometimes that's good and sometimes that's chaotic. But the thing is, we actually need to make sure that we spend the time with our children in order for all that stuff to happen. Now... In closing this morning's service, the question I need to now ask everybody is, okay, so what is the church's role in all of this? So we know that families are what they potentially are and it's all different and all of that, everything that I've just gone through. So how do we be the church? Not only corporately, but also individually. So a family going through a tough time or even going through a breakdown is hard and confusing. It's isolating. Now, parenting with two people is hard. Parenting with one parent, I, I can't even imagine how tough that is. One author wrote this. When your family decomposes and rips apart at the seams, your entire world follows. The hardest part of navigating through the wreckage is looking out and noticing everyone else's world remains intact. It's only yours that's separated by miles, 
divided into two apartments and spread over every other weekend. Broken, clueless and alone, there can seem to be no way forward. Like a complex chemical reaction, the idea of home and family has transformed and what was concrete is now fluid. Not everyone has the option of a nuclear family or, as a better option, not everyone has an option of a multi-generational extended home. So how can the church stand in the gap? Funnily enough, the circle of security actually can be our model for this as well. Regardless of what's going on in someone's life, we actually have the opportunity to be with our friends and our family. And when I say family, I also mean the extended families of the brothers and Christ and brothers and sisters in Christ. We can be there to share in the emotional experience of those we love and those we trust. And the thing is, which is a key point for a lot of people who are offering help, we do not need to fix them. That's not our job. Nor do we need to become emotionally overwhelmed. But we can offer each other the emotional support that they need. So how can we do that? Here are a couple of ways. One way is that we can open our eyes. We need to look up from our screens and our belly buttons long enough to see those people around us. We need to be able to recognise that people are going potentially through a hard time. Because if we can't see those around us, how can we love and serve them? Another way that we can do it is to open up our homes. Now that might just be for a visit, that might be for a meal, that might even be to live. We can be that extended family for those who don't have one. And the last thing we can do is open up our schedules. We need to be less busy so we can be more busy for the right reasons. Catch-ups, meals, coffee, being available for one another, being a shoulder to cry on, being an ear that will listen, being a hand to hold. In the time of family disruption and chaos, when we don't know what is up and we don't know what is down as a society, where both sides of the political spectrum have absolutely no idea what the answer is, the church actually has the answer. Because the church isn't about a set of rules and regulations. The church is about how do we be a people with each other? How do we love each other? How do we be family with each other? That is the point of what we're doing here. And it's not about God bothering someone so they become a Christian like us. I need to make that point. Because often what we do is we go, oh, hang on, I'm having a conversation with you, so therefore now I need to then try and convert you to something. How about you actually just be a friend to someone and let Jesus do that? That's what we're here for. So as we close tonight, I've actually, oh, bang on time, look at me go. And Marnie. <laughs> yes. Let me pray and we'll close the service.